Welcome to Independent Living Movement Ireland's podcast, Conversations About Activism and Change, where disabled activists talk about their experiences and their views on building a disability rights movement in the 21st century. For our eighth podcast, recorded on the 17th of June 2020, we are joined by Anne-Marie Flanagan. I have two brothers and I'm in the middle, but I'm actually the second girl. Um, My parents had a daughter and she died sadly before I was born. My, my mother was three months pregnant with me. And I, I say that because I think that has had a huge impact in our family and in my life, of course. My parents were only 19 when they got married. And by the time they were 21, they had my brother, they had buried their little girl and I was born. And I suppose in one way it was a blessing and I do feel she definitely is, um, an angel on my shoulder because when I was born the idea of tragedy didn't even come into it for my parents they were just so relieved that I was going to live and that I was going to be okay and that um, whatever needed to happen to address my needs the medical needs as so many of us with disabilities had to address so I suppose for them it was quite sad because I went straight from the maternity unit in Ennis to Croom Hospital in Limerick where I kind of spent seven years in and out and if you think about any of us who have babies now and it's you couldn't even imagine being separated from a baby but I was born in October 1972 and I came home on Christmas Eve and they were 21 years of age so I suppose that that's a big thing and I always am very mindful of that and I'm very mindful of the seven years I spent in an adult hospital and I had a real standout moment and as I was putting together this and I can imagine anyone who's done it before me it's actually way more emotional than I thought it was going to be um, but I suppose one of the things I remember saying to my mother I was about five and I was like but sure I don't have to go if you don't want me to go and the only way she could say she goes it's the law and Marie you have to go to hospital it's the law it was her way of coping and I suppose that was really good for me to hear because then I knew that she wasn't choosing for me to go to hospital or to be away but at the time as well there was no such thing as visiting every day they visited for two hours on a Sunday so I suppose from a very young age being away from my parents was a very natural thing so much so that um, as a response to the charity model of disability, oh, I absolutely, I had my hands out with anybody who was willing to um, send me to Lourdes or bring me on a holiday or whatever the options that were available. So that, that's the other standout moment for me. I, I went to, I, I was brought to Lourdes at the age of five, six, seven, twelve and sixteen. Um, and I share that because many of us have that experience um, but also that idea of taking a child away to a foreign country again on our own with strangers would be unheard of but had had great times and I grew up in a housing estate in a little council housing estate in rural Ireland in Corrafin and um, we were very lucky we lived across the road from the school when I started school my mother dropped me to school and no big deal see you later ma'am and from that was the only time she brought me to school there were three girls um, who were about 10 11 and 12 and they carried me to school every single day I remember the door I couldn't wait till they came to um, collect me and in fact the only time I was ever on time from school is when they were carrying me because once a week I got my little pushchair thing my brothers were bringing me I was late to school every day and we were only across the road like everybody else um 
so I, I, to me, you know, we talk about the social model and uh, medical model of disability, and I, I mean, the Declan Kelleher is without doubt one of my standout human beings in my life. He was the he became the principal when I was in senior infants, and he was a young, really amazing egalitarian human being. And everything that I experienced in primary school was within the social model context. He all he was driven by this normative approach of addressing everybody's needs, regardless of our class, our physical ability, our educational ability. Um, and I, a couple of examples of them. I remember he was organizing a fundraiser to put a ramp in the school because there were steps in. And he overheard me saying, because um, I, I was so excited, I wouldn't have, didn't have to be dragged up two steps. I was about second or third class, and he overheard me saying, "Oh, that's for me, so I don't have to walk up steps." And Declan said, "No, Anne Marie, it's for everybody who needs access to our school." Like that was back in the early eighties, and I remember um, in the evening time. But I remember when we were in fifth class, three of the boys in my class. I, 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 I spoke to him recently about it, how shocked he was that three of the boys couldn't read when they got to fifth class. And I remember him sitting inside every evening with them until they were able to read um, fifth and sixth class books. There was no such thing as what was then remedial teachers or resource teachers. And another example of it was um, every single activity that um, all, all of us participated in, I was facilitated in sports, in singing, in acting, whatever it was, he made sure I had the lead role. Um, hence my um, unfortunate ability to, to talk and not shut up. So you can blame Declan Killer. Um, so I suppose for me, the first 12 years of my life were very much part of the community, the same as all the other kids. I was well able to ask for help. I didn't have aids and appliances. I was about nine or 10 then when um, I, I was very lucky to meet a disabled woman who was a an occupational therapist. Um, and she really, I looked up to her. I thought, oh my God, look at this woman. She's married, she's got kids, she's a professional. She was somebody that I wanted to grow up and be like. Her name is Joyce Henderson. Many of you might may have heard of her and her. Um, and incidentally, her um, son got married and moved to Clare and her, his son is my son's friend, so a small world. Um, so I suppose I was really glad to, to meet her and she organised for me to get a trike and that was my, I was 10 before I had my first mobility, um, like uh, appliance, so I got to move around freely. Um, and I don't know if anybody read Judy Human's book, but there's a part in the book where she describes so fantastically um, um, going from her, her house to her friend's house and having to be able to push up the, the tiny incline and it taking um, ages and ages. And I suppose that was a really stark reality for me. I remember thinking I was going to have complete freedom, but my physical impairment became very evident to me because I, I didn't realize actually how impaired my arms were because everybody just helped me or um, I asked for help and I remember not being able to get up the incline and feeling so gutted. I actually thought I was going to disappoint my parents um, because they had to carry me so much and I don't know if they ever said it. It wasn't what they said or did. I just, you know, I, maybe I was coming of age and I remember that and I think puberty was you know, I was at the early stage of maybe prepubescent and beginning to realise some differences. Um, when I was seven, um, I remember coming home from school and telling my mother that 
that there was um, going to be a, t a dancing teacher coming to Corafin and could I have 50 pence and could I join it? I just want to give you an example of how absolutely completely immersed myself in everything and and it was because of my primary school education and my grandmother as well on my father's side she was a really an amazing woman she made sure all the women her daughters were third level educated she used to always say to us never need a man you can want a man when we were teenagers so we'd always that really lovely grounding um in terms of um even feminist values as well and that gender equality stuff and um, but i remember coming home anyone was saying ma'am i need 50 pence and like, that's how my life was. My mother gave me the 50 pence. She didn't even question anything. So she handed me the 50 pence and I went off to step dancing classes. And I remember two, Lily Slevin, the school of the dancer, the teacher, she used to get two kids to hold my hand so I could waddle away dancing. I, I don't know if anybody else remembers that being a small child. I thought I was going to be a world champion dancer. So I remember she was um, going around about a year later asking for the girls and boys' names to go to a fish. And she was like, Bungrod or Argrod? And I said to her, what, what am I? And she was really stunned and she didn't know how to answer it. So the next week she had organised for parents to come and she brought a costume for me. And oh no, I remember that day and I said to her, I actually, you know, I dance to music when I'm at home. So I used to go home from classes, get my mother to put on a tape and I'd be waddling away and in perfect, perfect step because um, I had good rhythm to Noel Hill, Tony Lanann. So she was blown away by my, I suppose, my, I suppose my drive and my self-belief. So when it was all over, she presented me with a medal and thought that would be the end of it. And then I said, in front of everyone, so, well, and she goes, what? And she goes, well, am I Ardgrod or Bungrod? And the place fell around. So she let me sign up for the fish. And it was a huge, huge monster fish. I didn't realize, I didn't know anything about it. So I, I participated in the competition and I was like all the kids at the end of the stage and they um, they called out thir their runners up. And I was like, phew, that's not me. I might get third or second or first. And they called out third and second. And even the children with me, would you believe, they were all like, oh, you, you might win, you might win. And then, and then they, and they called out and then joined first. I can't even remember the other girl's name, Neve something and Anne-Marie Flanagan and the whole place erupted. And I remember I got off the stage and I, I, I said to ma'am, I said to ma'am, I said, ma'am, was I that good? Because they were all standing up and clapping. And I remember, um, I actually remember the moment when I realised I was different. And um, I was definitely, I had realized, maybe I'd seen, I, I realized my sexuality as well. And I said, I started to feel self-conscious. And, um, and I said, and I said it to the teacher and she was so sad. And she said, but will you come back and teach the, the juniors for another year for me? So I did. And I came back and I used to go over and back with the, the, the babies when they were, and then I finished and I realized that, I had a disability. <laughs> so um, moving on, I suppose at 13, 13 was a really big year in my life. It was, I was, it was a lot of trauma. My 32 year old, year old uncle died. I could really see the trauma coming back from my mother's loss of my sister. It was hugely profound. And I suppose it was afterwards I started to realize it, not maybe in the moment. We moved house from the village into the country and I went to secondary school. Now that was massive. I, I, I hadn't really reflected on that 
um, in some time. And I, I, I felt rage. And you know, any of you know me, it still seeps out. I felt rage. So much happened and I couldn't put my finger on it. But also moving into secondary school was the first time I had a quite traumatic experience. From the moment I crossed that threshold, I was dehumanized. I was, there was an assumption I had an intellectual disability, not that there's anything wrong with it, but even if I did, I wasn't helped. I had, um, it was the first, oh, I was also given a wheelchair and my father actually found it very hard to accept that I was using a wheelchair because he bought into the medical model of disability and he believed that the more help somebody got, the less able they were. And, and we talk about that a lot. That went on for years. I'll give you another example in a while. And we struggled between us around that because he, I, he took it personally that maybe he wasn't parenting um, good enough and whereas um, I should have enjoyed the emancipation of having a wheelchair and being able to move around without struggling and dragging myself or sitting, a, sitting at one point, I don't know if anybody else did, but I used to sit at one point wherever I went and got people to come to me. I'd hold going to the toilet all day long. There were loads and loads of different things. I wouldn't want to bother my mother for showers. I probably didn't wash enough. Like so many things that not being a teenager and not having personal assistance and being self-conscious. A joke in our house would be, I would shout, Mammy! And my father would answer, Dad, And he used to drive me mad because it was a personal thing that I needed help with. And I couldn't say it out loud and I'd go, oh, nothing. You know, and I mean, they were great parents. It was nothing that they did. It was just my awareness of they had other things to do with their life. So that was my moment, um, Damien Tansh. Those were my moments that realized that, um, no, there could be a different way. And, and also, I remember at 16, when the um, anyone who went to Lourdes with the IHCPT, a really lovely, lovely organization, and they used to organize summer camps. And I remember I was on the summer camp and it was about half eight, nine o'clock and all the, the volunteers or helpers or whatever they were called were pushing us off to bed. At 16 years of age, at 16 I was drinking, smoking, um, hanging out, doing a lot of things and they were putting me to bed. Well, I can tell you, I sorted that out. But what really upset me was that my friends with profound disabilities were started to be put to bed at about seven o'clock. Now there were people that I had in my life, so Dermot, you remember Patricia and Helen Kelly, and Patricia and Helen Kelly were in my life from the age of 12, and very, very sadly they've passed on, so, um, and they've been a big part of my life, but they were about seven or eight years older than me, and they had quite significant impairments in that they needed assistance to communicate um, as well as others, like I did. But 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 what really upset me when we went to this thing, they they and others were being put to bed, and I remember being bribed the first night and said, "Well, you can stay up till ten, but we're going to help such and such because they want to go to bed." So on the first night, I accepted the bribe, but I didn't have a good night because the lads were in bed, and I was like, "Not." So then on the second night I said, sorry, everyone has to stay up that wants to stay up. And I started to organize and, and, and you could feel the, the, the rage in the rest, in the volunteers, because they wanted a good night of drinking. And so next thing we were all up <laughs> until 12 or 1 o'clock. And I can tell you, it was a great summer camp after that. And so, you know, even training the, uh, the other adults that it was, they were there for us. Because I remember saying, and um, I remember actually turning around to this woman saying, is this the only holiday you're going to get? 
And she said, what? And I said, is this your holiday? And she said, no. And I said, but you know, it's my only holiday because we were working class and my parents wouldn't have gone away on holidays. So it was my holiday. So I remember that clearly. So that was my first speaking up. The other big one, and where's my buddy, Miriam? But Miriam and I were heavily involved in the branches of the Wheelchair Association. And before it was taken over from a staff perspective in pure service, in the early days, any of us were involved, it was great crack. It was very charity model, but we were, we, we were members, we voted on everything, we, we organised. But in Clare, there were two fantastic women. They were very charity and philanthropic, but they were lovely. And they organised the branch for years. But when they retired, it, I think we were the only branch in the country at the time that was organised by three disabled people. So I had said, I remember used to say 15, 16, 17, can I be on the committee? And why, why, why can't I be on the committee? So I took over as secretary and a woman called Anne took over as chairperson. And then we had Michael who was treasurer or the other way around. And it was the first time three disabled people were running a branch. Well, we turned it upside down. We got all our friends um, and family to become drivers, helpers. Um, it was the most, it was a really, it was a really good launching for Nothing About Us Without Us in a very charity way. So I went off to college. And at the time, um, because of my experience, I had a very poor leave insert, but I repeated my leave insert with my brother in the Christian Brothers name Simon. And I can tell you, did that make up for the five years of hell that I put down at Kloshta? And the, um, the brother was a very special man. It was his last year um, before the brothers left. And he was delighted. He said, what are you, why, do you, why don't you go to the convent? And the other guy said, I've had five years of that. And he said, you're very welcome here. And I was treated respectfully. Um, I was, listen, I was surrounded by 33 boys. We were in the country. It was great. And I really needed it. There was a lot of healing for me in that. So I went off to college. In 1991 was the beginning of AHEAD. And I was the rep for um, Tralee RTC. Now, my three years in college was full of extracurriculum activities. I really made the most of leaving home. I can tell you, I, I remember I used to have a very close friend, Frank and Damien, and we used to sit in the I was computer programming. Now, my partner of 20 years, I also have a son who's eight, by the way, and um, my partner of 20 years, he's um, an engineer and a mechanic. And there's a running joke in our house because years ago, Derek was under an engine. And I remember ringing him going, Derek, how do you print? Some, there was a new update and I couldn't print. And he said, Henry, are you the one with a degree in computer programming? <laughs> I am. That's how much I studied computer programming. And my attitude for um, science um, was low to say it's, um, it, um, so, but I had um, definitely an amazing time going to college. So just to let you know, when I went to college again, I had no personal assistance, I had a manual wheelchair, and I was used to people helping me because I was around people, okay? So I got on, I was, my mother helped me up on a bus. I had arranged for the landlady, so the place I stayed was at the back of the landlady's house, and she was kind enough to collect me. And I got up for college the first day and I asked one of the people who I didn't really know, would they mind pushing to college? 
and they did and then I had to get someone to bring me back and it went on for three days and Catherine is her name the the woman who owns the the, the landlady and she said to me in a really lovely way because she had students for years and she goes I mean is this your plan now for the next three years and I said what she goes being pushed to college and in my world um, the medical model of disability was so ingrained with all my um, ideas of um, autonomy and my, my sense of um, right to be the same as everybody else. I had believed to use a motorized wheelchair was a, it was a bit like the manual wheelchair. It was going to be a backward step. It was for people with profound disabilities and it was never for me. And then Catherine said, you know you need a motorized wheelchair. And I really sat with that and I struggled with it. And at the time that was preceding the HSE's policy on funding wheelchairs. So I remember they were £5,000 and my parents couldn't have afforded it. I didn't even tell them about the conversation. I wouldn't have put them in that situation. So at the time there was, um, there was um, a, a fund, a benevolent fund in the college for students who couldn't pay their rent. <laughs> I always laugh at all my friends who got some money from the benevolent fund thereafter. And um, it was empty. And I remember Catherine was got on really well with the chaplain. He was really sound. And again, my experience of amazing people, they, they, they knew well that the, um, a charity event wouldn't work for me. Or she, she spoke to me about it. And I said, no, I wouldn't want to be um, at the, tar the, you know, the, the center of that. So they came to me and said that I would be doing them a favor if we could coincide raising funds for my wheelchair and topping up the benevolent fund. So I thought about it. And I, I agreed and honest to God, it was really an amazing experience in the student union got involved. Uh, to be honest, I, kind of, I was a bit of a celebrity for a year, but um, the presentation of the wheelchair to me was so, done so beautifully. They'd got this big up and coming band um, in Tralee and I didn't know anything about it. And um, then I had gone home for um, lunch or I had classes off and then um, Catherine had organized for one of the girls to give me a push down to the, the, the canteen and I arrived and out of three and a half thousand students, there was about 2000 there and they presented me with the chair and that was my, I haven't looked back yet and I've been in a motorized wheelchair since. And I, I remember the feeling of someone walking beside me. I was 19 years of age and the idea of moving independently and so and looking sideways rather than looking back was quite an amazing feeling. So um, while I was at college then and I attended the AHEAD meeting and I remember actually my working class identity got really triggered because um, there was Sinead from Trinity and there was a load of UCD students and they they had different accents and they they were so much more familiar with AHEAD because they came out of UCD and us poor technical colleges, I think there were only about three or four disabled people around the country um, who weren't going to university. So there was only a couple of us. Um, so there was a bit of a them and us um, at the time, but I remember being really, really glad that AHEAD was being established and that there was this lovely supportive focus for students with disabilities. And um, Dermot, you were involved in the community co-op, co which was on the outskirts of Corafin. And Derm both Dermot and I are actually from that village. 
and Dermot and my uncle and others that I knew very well had been very involved in this really amazing um, progressive community co-op that was looking at um, the empowerment of people. They were looking at, I suppose, I, I actually put down words that really jumped. I, I needed to be reminded of the language that at 19 years of age, I was finally um, given language that I needed to, to help me understand um, and to have analysis of my lived experience because I didn't have anything up until then. And um, I was grateful like anybody involved who were exposed to the charity model i felt guilty um for um putting upon my parents and in particular my mother and um, and my my brother although i did ask my brother to write an article when is james there so james and i are both part of another group and um, the arts great post association and we were putting together a website and i asked my brother and um, to write a story about um growing up with me um, and it was so lovely. He said, what do you want me to say? You were a pain in the arse or what? And I said, no, but how you helped me? And he said, sure, I can't even remember that. So that's not, I suppose I really needed to hear that. So he, he, he didn't actually really have anything to say about that other than what other people wouldn't, what I wouldn't want them to read. Um, but I, I remember when um, Dermot and I and Donica Antonio has passed on and um, Thomas, Declan and uh, Jerome joined us then. I was, I was a, again, I, I always found myself being the youngest and um, either the only or very few, um, the only woman, the only girl at the time. And it was all, all really all male. And that, that's, I wanted to say that because I suppose that contributes to um, my loudness and the needing to be heard and how I react at times. Um, because while it was an amazing um, um, experience for me, um, it was a particular experience for me. Um, but I did, I suppose I was finally um, afforded the opportunity to have, I suppose, an analysis and language um, around and also the intersectionality of um, DPOC's involvement with the co-op was very profound for us and I think that's why DPOC was so successful over the years and why we were able to contribute to you know the national discussion because I suppose from the get-go we were never just the DPOC um, we were part of what was called the clear network of disadvantaged communities and and um, Michael Nealon, who is uh, one of our, what would you call it, our gurus, our, his sociologist, he was probably the brainchild behind most of anything, um, the co-op, and um, even though he's, he's a bit like Martin, himself and Martin, um, as a feminist, I felt very confused because the two people I looked up to most in the world were Michael Nealon and Martin Upton. And as a feminist, I was like, what's going on here? Where are the women? So um, I, I do want to acknowledge that, and Dermot as well. So um, I suppose, again, that, that analysis of inequality quality and um, that the, the shared experience. So there were um, a group of us involved in it and there was Kathleen Sherlock, one of my best friends, and she was um, a really amazing woman involved in the, um, uh, she's a traveller woman and really wanted to make changes. And there was Madeleine involved in um, and women's equality, but very much looking at the experience of domestic violence. Um, and then you had, um, I remember, and, and, and that's where the women came into my life, Josephine, and she was very involved in supporting um, women, particularly who were the small hordes of farmers. So in Clare, um, you know, you, you talk about small farmers, but we, we 
small farmers, there was a joke in it. So in what we rec what we recognized was that it was women that were doing all the work. And then the other group um, was where, um, people parenting alone, which was mainly women. And the other group, I suppose, that was um, women working at home. So women who had, like Carmel, um, women who, who'd reared their families and weren't entitled to anything. So when the structural funds were coming in, where, where Ireland was drawing down structural funds, and any of you involved in the development of partnerships, what was very obvious was all those people were not entitled to benefit from the structural funds because we were not part of the live register. And so part of our process with the DPOC and others led by Michael was to do an analysis and to um, apply for funding knowing that we weren't going to get it because it was area-based funding you know so identified black spots of um, long-term unemployment but together with people from Paul Partnership and Cork real good strong colleagues of Michael and Dermot's and um, together what we brought uh, about real um, um, change in the state policy that um, allowed and recognised the um, unemployment and the deprivation of people on um, receiving those benefits. And I suppose we were part of a piece of history that actually um, changed the policy that allowed, um, not allowed, but that um, recognised the need to respond to people who had other um, social welfare um, um, incomes, but that weren't on the live registers. That, I remember that to being a huge, huge success. Um, and also it was lovely to be active in issues that affected so many of us because also what was really important to me as a young person was not to be siloed as a disabled person because I suppose most of my young life um, I very I very I always felt part of everything and then I went through this period of being completely um, feeling excluded and and later on we're going to talk about internalized oppression because I I question myself is that because I feel internalized in my oppression or is it because I do feel part of society I actually haven't fully worked that one out yet and maybe that's something we'll all do together so um, when the DPOC was developing we um, I suppose we took to me the DPOC was at a point in time that Irish society was at there was collective action all over the country forum of people with disabilities was in its infancy and the Centre for Independent Living was you know involved in the um, pilot of personal assistance and here we were in the corner of North Clare and we were hungry to learn we were sponges dermis weren't we so I remember we we, we met with the forum and the, the DPOC constitution, we adopted the Forum of People with Disabilities constitution. We met with Martin. I remember the very first time I met Martin, he, um, we, they, oh my God, well, he, we never lived it down. So he came to there as we were organizing a fundraiser and there we were, rights, not charity. I, like that's the, that's the internalized part that we had to work through. Um, and I remember, and Martin had a fag in his mouth and a whiskey and he was giving out stink and being really supportive all in the one breath. Do you, you know anyone who worked with Martin, how he could cut you down and you think you're being given a, you're, you're giving a pep talk all in the one go. So we had many of those at Martin. So we started to figure out that um, we, most of us were rural based. We, we, we depended on our families and we didn't have any transport. And 
what was and, and next thing we were learning about the independent living movement and we're like oh my god we couldn't have written it better ourselves so i suppose we it, it allowed us then to be politically active and our first campaign was to call on the national rehabilitation board to make their offices accessible and again um the the the, the boldness of us so we had one hand where we were calling for the closure of the NRB. And in the other hand, we were receiving a cheque of £5,000 for seed funding because the, they were quite impressed with us now at the time. And um, I remember the co-op gave us a thousand. I was looking at how did we actually, um, we used to, we were, because we were um, cooperative in our approach, we would fund stuff ourselves out of our disability allowance. Um, and, and myself and Dermot, I think, because we were both single at the time, Dermot and I funded so much and Dermot did in particular, and people don't realize that, but we would pay for people rather than have people stay at home. And that was important to us. And we were very part of the cooperative spirit. Um, another huge, huge milestone for us. We were so excited about the Commission on the Status of People with Disabilities. And I remember when they were doing, they had, they had different places that they were consulting. And the, the DPOC, you know, wrote and said, well, we're from Clare and like there's no transport. So we were so delighted that they held an additional event in Clare um, for, um, for, for people of Clare and it wasn't part of their original calendar. So again, just even little things like that, that they were empowering and mobilizing um, more and more of us. And when we were setting up the Centre for Independent Living and anybody who wants, wants to watch the 10th anniversary video of DPSC, it's on the ILMI and YouTube channel. I suppose one of the things that stood out to Dermot and I was how profoundly fearful people were of independent living. And um, so we, we with, with the help of Martin, we convinced FOSS to give this community employment scheme like lots of the CILs. And Dermot was supervisor and I was administrator. And what we did was we shared the two wages. So we were both full time and we, we, we to keep it going. But I remember us, um, I suppose, traveling around to and knocking on people's doors and asking them would they like a personal assistant explaining what it was and i suppose that was a very moving time for both of us because uh, some of the original people um, were women who um, were married with children mostly grown-up children who um three of the the very first leaders were um people with acquired disabilities who um were experiencing let's say, domestic abuse and personal assistance changed their lives and, and, and having a personal assistant and being able to ask for help and how much they shared of their most personal lives to, to both of us and how much they trusted us. But the fear of family members um, was, was profound as well and, and were fearful of letting go. Not, not, and to be honest, it was because they thought that other people could do it better. You know, it was a genuine love for their family members. There was nothing else. And I suppose then we started to gain ground with other, our, our, our colleagues in Clare who were doing other community activism and we would have been involved and we engaged like everybody else with politicians. And then I suppose for us, we were very committed to um, working with the Forum of People with Disabilities and the CIL and for, we did that for years. But then like what was hugely um, difficult for Dermot and I um, was the move from Roxton into Innes. 
because I suppose democracy in itself is a very interesting process because democracy exposes people with a vision to people who have a different idea of doing things. And because of the, um, the, the DPOC being a democratic organization, we uh, opened it up to people who identified as having disability, may not have understood a rights-based approach, maybe were very ground stuck to the charity model, but had a right to be involved because we wanted to bring everybody along. But moving into Innes, becoming more service-driven, and, expo and, and, and opening it up to people um, where, where everybody had a right to be there. But bit by bit, the, um, we, we could feel we were losing a grip on the rights-based model. And that was very difficult and was very, very difficult. I had moved to Dublin. I was working for the Centre for Independent Living. Um, I had moved from the CIL to Interact, which is now DESA, and Jackie is the chairperson, actually. So Martin was the coordinator of Interact, and then he left and I became the coordinator. And I suppose we were um, um, difficult employees for that national organisation because they had a different view of it. I mean, it was embedded in a national charity and I suppose community development is community development. So I suppose for me, I do feel um, that I, I was um, part of um, taking that important piece of funding and taking it away from a charity and that DESA then got established as an autonomous, independent and um, community development organisation. And I know Peter is very involved and Alice is um, the, so I, I'm just really, really glad that DESA is what it is and having worked as the interact coordinator. Um, um, I remember clearly being really, really conflicted. Um, and I remember when I was working nationally, I never said who my employer was because I, um, that was my, part of my oppression, but also the ideology of the organization didn't fit with what we were doing. But also when we were working with community development projects, some of the projects were still very much responding to disabled people from a charity, you know, bring them in, we'll give them a few funding. Whereas for me, I was young, I was radical. I wanted to, to really empower people. So it's six pilot areas across the country. But I suppose the one I want to talk about for a second is the DIG in Ballymun. And does anyone know Dinah, Dinah Dodrell? So Dinah, she's still there and I saw her recently. And uh, so Dinah was this amazing woman in, and she's a disabled woman and she was involved in the, um, the women's centre in um, before the regeneration. And we, 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 and I got some extra funding and we asked Donald Tulin um, to do some work. And by, I think it was the best year of those back years, the laughing we did and the crack we had and both of us observed that um, why Badig was so successful in responding to the rights-based approach to disabled people was because it was untarnished by charity. It was, you know, everybody lived a life of him and of poverty, of social exclusion. So everyone was in it together, you know, so we were, so there was that narrative, there was an understanding of rights and also we placed ourselves, um, well, Bedig did, placed themselves within the women's centre. There were, um, and there were very much um, gender equality um, and the woman Kathleen was amazing that, that led us. And um, again, another woman who has passed so one of the things we did, which was, we were very proud of it, and um, we supported Badig, myself and Donal, to um, challenge the regeneration um, committee, um, because there were 12 men 
um, who were outside of um, Ballymun, who were the regeneration board. And I remember Diamond and Kathleen were absolutely raging. So we organised. So also Kathleen said no one will listen to her because she was um, in the area recognised as, um, you know, identified as one of those problem people always. Um, Kathleen Marath. And so we, we so Diana said, I'll take the lead on it. So um, Badig organised this public meeting, got everyone together. And as a consequence, the, the, they, um, they changed the formation of the board and opened up four spaces for community representatives. And, and that was very powerful. But I want to tell you, at the time, Interact was placed within a national organization. And a lot of my work, I felt I had to do covertly. Um, and when the, um, the senior member of the organization found out we were doing it, I was pulled from being involved, but it was already going to happen, so that was okay. Um, and I think that that's important to say that because there is a conflict, it's not just charity. For years there's been a conflict between the rights-based approach and then a real activist approach and national charity organizations. Um, so the other one that stood out to me was Badig were very um, supportive of John Doyle's um, sleep out outside of um, Houston Station. So um, John and Martin came up with this genius idea that John would, um, you know, obviously because he came in and out of Bray and anyone who knows John, he's passed away and we, we miss him. Um, so John at the time, his son was four and I remember he was very affected by having to, his son said, Daddy, why are you, why do you have to carry your own wheelchair up the step? So then himself and Martin came up with this brilliant campaign and built this transport campaign around him. And um, and then we used to turn up over the three days in solidarity with him. And again, the CEO and one of the senior staff members um, said to me that that wasn't community development. And could I go back to the office? So I I, I need to say that because there are things that um, that need to be said. That, that you know this like these were organisations getting millions from the state, and we were fighting with against them, and to try and raise. Um, the issues um, and it was very systemic and was very deep rooted. But should we plugged on? So I, I I was very privileged to have met Nick Danaher um, at a conference in Ireland that um, CIL had organised around personal assistance, independent living, and then I was privileged to work for nearly two years in um, England as the direct payments advisor. I had a direct payment. I had a right to it. And I had a formal assessment, a piece of paper that said that I had a right to. It was it was a really beautiful experience. So I not only had my own lived experience of it, but also I got to support other people. And because of my 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 quite maverick, loud Irish um, voice, I was able to secure one of the biggest packages for a young boy, a young guy in the country, and it was great. Um, so the process was you would empower the person to self-assess, um, we would then on their behalf put a, a, a costings, and it was all disabled people led. All the services, the support organisations across the country, indirect payments in the UK, were led by disabled people, the board, 
and the employees were disabled people providing peer support um, um, and advice to um, the social, social services and commissioning. So commissioning is the, where the money comes from and social services is where the ser services come, come from. So, um, and then, um, so we would support disabled people, but also then we would provide training to care managers to, to try and to understand why it was important for that person to go from a day service or um, um, you know, um, in, and, and to take control of their lives. But also, which drives me on around how we need to get away from the way we do things here in Ireland. Um, in the UK, it was a given that people with an intellectual disability had um, a direct payment. It was a given that person with dementia would have a direct payment. It was a given that a Muslim disabled person would and it would be built around the cultural norms or a person who was ill through HIV and AIDS. Like these were all given rights and um, not given rights, protected rights. And it was a given culturally that disabled people would support each other and, and that the interpretation of directing a service wasn't about the, the technical part. Um, it was around being able to decide what that individual wanted. And then for people with significant intellectual disabilities um, or dementia, there was um, a trust um, built around that person. But the, um, the CILs or the support were unapologetic in um, absolutely ensuring that two out of the three people who were trustees absolutely fundamentally believed in the rights of that individual and that was they would you know we would have to work with them and they would sign documentation and um, to to commit to that and then the other person could be you know a person that was loved very dearly and had concerns and um, but always the right of the individual was for foremost so i came back for three reasons one i felt i did feel like a fish out of sea on reflection, I probably was emotionally damaged by different things, and I felt I, 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 there was, I felt, what did I feel? I felt there was so much to be done at home, and they had it sorted. That was how I experienced England, that the movement was very much together. They had fantastic relations with the state. They had legislation that we didn't have. So, to me, going to work from nine to five with nothing else to do, that's not my nature anyway. And, and also there was so much to be done at home. And at the time, the DPOC was really, really struggling. But two other big things was, I suppose, my relationship with Derek was, um, got serious. And I am um, part of the DPOC strategy originally was to help every single disabled person that wanted a house to sign and um, to 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 we facilitated people to write to the local authority and um, and of course I was one of them. So while it took years and years and years, eventually and um, there was a new scheme built in Corfin and I was very fortunate to get my very first home, which I had for 12 years, and, and that's where Robert was born into and Derek moved in and was great memories. So I, I, I just wanted to come home. So I was really, really fortunate again. And Joe Mooney, who also has died, oh my God, this is a heartbreaking story, really, all our, our peers have passed on. And um, so Joe was the manager of Independent Living Community Services. And Joe was also my boss in Fantastic. And we were very good friends, but I so much respect for him. He was this quiet man who just could get the job done. So he was, um, would you believe it, looking for um, a national development officer for ILCS. And I um, applied for the job and I got off the boat 
and went for my job interview and I was very, very lucky to get it. And so then I was fortunate to work with all the CILs around Ireland for about a year and a half to support them just to, with contracts and at, um, there was no such thing as service level agreements at the time, you just got your few bob and they used to hand them out at coordinating committees. But actually the state was as unorganised as we were and, and we were the ones blamed for being disorganised when I think about it. So, um, and also then West Limerick Independent Living was helping CIL, Limerick had, um, so they, I was working with them and in Wexford and a few pieces of work was really great and I loved it. And also, and um, I was, um, I kind of coordinated the, you know, the disability, the diploma um, the, with Maynooth, the disability studies, all oh, that Sarah did. Um, um, so I would have been involved in coordinating that as well. So that finished up, I, um, Independent Living Community Service actually closed down and it was the very first time in my uh, adult life that I was unemployed. Um, but actually I was very lucky because um, West Limerick Independent Living, sorry, or West Limerick Independent Living Service, they're called, um, West, West Limerick CIL and um, the Cheshire Home were together, working together to develop a disability equality training programme and they employed me to do it. And that was fantastic as well. And then I had met through that course I'd met, who is now one of my very, very, very best friends. And she had just come back from Australia and sure, I was mad for road and I was, we were going to turn off around the world and um, for um, a year. And um, I then applied for the Shine job. I didn't get the Schizophrenia Ireland, it was called at the time, and I got the job. And um, so I'm there 18 years. And I suppose along the way then, my politics, um, my mainstream politics, um, there was something within me, I, I just wanted to get involved and, and I felt that, that with my, my, my stuff around um, gender equality, um, stuff around the, the, the rights of disabled people, I felt we, I wanted to do something more, and I, I'm saying mainstream, but something um, to connect with politics. And at the time, I was quite moved by um, Trevor Sargent and Patricia McKenna, and they really spoke my language and the idea of ecology, economy and, and, and equality together. And I suppose I became very aware of climate change and our responsibility to the earth and biodiversity. And, um, and the part, I knew nothing about it, but I just knew that I needed to do something as well. Um, so I joined the Green Party. And over the years, in 2000, I joined the Green Party. I ran for election twice. I was the vice chair of the national executive and I would have led their equality committee. And that was without doubt an amazing journey for me um, to be amongst probably some of the most inspiring politicians in the country. And I, I spent my life wiping my eyes every time Trevor would speak or Patricia McKenna or people. I, I was just so moved all the time. And also, um, for me, my identity, um, I was struggling with my identity um, for a while in terms of the movement or, you know, where I, I felt that the women's movement excluded us and, and, and I was othering in my head and I felt upset and cross about it. And I was bothered that the carers movement was getting louder. Yet, of course, I have empathy for family members. Like I was struggling with a couple of things. So, um, and then um, I, I ran for election. And I remember in 2004, that, that feeling of being pigeonholed 
being um, siloed, um, not being taken seriously in terms of someone who could represent the population. And I was on a massive steep learning curve, but it was brilliant. I'm really, really glad I did it. Um, and um, it addressed a lot of issues for, for me, but also it was regardless of the outcome of the election, it really did. It was a huge opportunity to shift and change the minds of, of people who, who, who would have just thought of disabled people as a single issue, um, you know, um, a, a person who was active in terms of single issues. So I, I continued and in 2009, after the Green Party were decimated, and I was quite proud that I held 8% of the vote and when we were wiped out, I had been pipped to the post because they had reduced the area from a six-seater to a five-seater and again I, I lost out but that was meant to be and that's okay because the person who's there now she's amazing but I stepped away from formal I didn't want to be part of a political party because I I really wanted to re-engage with the disabled people's movement again and I think I suppose Dermot and I read a lot of um, wounds to lick after the DPOC and, and we were so um, with such a um, a close relationship to it um, and then I suppose we set about um, thinking about what, what we need to do further. So a very personal uh, experience that I had in 2011, my son was born and um, I waited my whole life to become a parent. I was 38 by the time I had Robert and we had lost a baby um, and then we had Robert and I thought I never would become a mother and, and I was, you know, I thought long and hard about it and I had an income, I had a partner and, and I had personal assistance service that facilitated my, my, me to be a mother and when Robert was born on the 21st of July and on the 24th of July when I was home the day I came home I opened a letter to say that the HSE were cutting 30 of my hours. I was quite traumatised by that. I was shocked, I was disgusted. I, I had written a letter to the HSE and to my service provider telling them that I was being a parent. I was being responsible at every level. Not that I should have, it was my privacy, but I thought I would do that, of course, and um, out of respect, but also just wasn't something happened and I needed, not that I had, a, I have a lot of hours, so that's not the issue, but just in case. So, um, I actually learned that they took the hours off me while Robert was being born around the same time, which I thought was interesting. So when I contacted the HSE and the IWA, both of them blamed each other and I reminded them that I wrote the letter. So um, instead of just enjoying maternity leave, I um, then I realised, I contacted Dermot and others because we didn't have it was the TPOC, yeah, I was still there at the time, um, but it had gone a different direction. So I contacted Dermot and I felt very lonely um, during that time. I felt quite alone and I felt alone because a lot of people that I asked for help thought that, sure, what help do I need? I'm so articulate and I'm the representative of so many disabled people. Um, and I thought, wow, that's a really interesting um, I, um, a viewpoint that people have of me. And um, I was quite scared. Um, quite frightened, quite sad. I was hormonal anyway after having a baby. Um, and um, I, so of course the wonderful Dermot 
made sure everyone rallied around. But I quickly learned that another 900 or 199 other people were having the same experience. It wasn't just me. And then that was it. I was driven because I knew that the majority of those people had no one to speak up for them. And so um, we organized meetings. And in actual fact, I was pulled up for breastfeeding at one of the meetings. <laughs> um, oh, my God, it's really interesting. So we, we I and a few others managed to keep, protect our hours. Um, I had to pay for a private OT um, assessment. I got my assessment from the UK over. And the letter I got back um, was not a non-committal one, just telling me that for now I can keep my hours um, but they may review it in the future. And I suppose that's what spurs me on to be part of the collective, to bring about the right to a personal assistance service. Because if someone like me experiences the level of threat, and I mean, my fight or flight kicks in every so often. So any of you who, who, who are at the other end of my fight or flight um, um, experiences, because I do feel threatened a lot. A lot of things have happened to us disabled people that feed that fear and threat just when you think life is okay, it comes at us. That was 2011. So, and I remember for, for two or three years looking over my shoulder because they, they took the hours on the basis that they were cutting social hours off everybody in County Clare because they'd run out of money for personal assistance service. So imagine they made us responsible for the state's lack of um, service to other people. It was shocking. And one person stands out, I don't know, Dermot, if you remember him, he was a man in his middle years. He had a... Um, I don't know, he'd, he'd acquired quite profound um, physical trauma and as a consequence he had to live in one of the residential care homes and he had five hours a week to go home and visit his wife and children and they took those five hours off him. They tried to but he was one person that I wanted to help as well. I mean it was just shocking um, the, the attitude that you could take those hours off people um, and without any consequences. So in 2012 like other people have referred to I'm driving along and it's August and I'm at work and I hear the announcement that the there will be 10,000 hours or 10 million, I can't, was it 10 million? 10 million um, taken off the personal assistant um, budget. Well, I, I pulled in. I was so emotional. I was so upset. And I thought, here we go again. And this is shocking indictment of the state. So at the time, um, you know, any of us who were activists, we didn't need to be told to go and do what we need to do. So um, Robert was only one at the time, but I know that, so I know that there were so many people like Lee and Dermot, thank you, Lee and Dermot um, and um, Martin and Donal, they were all doing the sleep out. But what we needed was we needed other people around the country to keep you know, our stories in the headlines. So one of the things I did at the time would have been contacting people in Cork and whatever and would have said, you know, this is how, tell our story. Because the difference between um, campaigns, um, this one was taking, taking something away from us, whereas all the others is were asking to be heard. And I think in Irish society where other people are also looking for their issues to be addressed, you know, there isn't the same level of empathy because, um, you know, we're, they have stuff, you know, they have to send their children to school, they're unemployed, they don't have a house. So it's very hard at times to get mass support. But this one, 
I, the media were our best friends, politicians were our best, everyone was because we were able to tell our stories of our families, of our jobs, of our homes, stuff we had done with our personal assistance service and to take it off was shocking. So I suppose I would have been um, at a regional level, local, one of the things I had done, because I, I, I would never tell my story in, in public like that, um, but I, it needed to be told. So I would have used regional and national media and to support everybody who was sleeping out. And it was a very profound um, experience. So that was August and we were we were delighted that they weren't going, imagine delighted they weren't going to take the hours off us. And then in September, they decided to cut the mobility grant of the, the most significantly disabled and poorest people in the country. I, I just thought, is this ever going to end? So we didn't actually have anything in Clare at the time. I rang Dermot and I said, Dermot, we have to do something about it. So um, I remember I rang DFI and I said, will you pay for um, a room? And I just want to give you examples of stuff we can all do. You don't have to be part of any big thing. So this isn't about saying I'm great. It was, I just want to give examples that anyone sitting here can do something to raise awareness. That's the point of this example. I, I rang Dermot and I said, Dermot, will we, what, who's going to speak for, these, for, for people who, who literally don't have a voice? Um, so I remember we rang Lee and that was before she became the, the confidential recipient, but because she had such a fantastic bowed northern accent and she was just the queen of the PA campaign and sleeping out, I just thought we'd, we'd get some attention. So we asked Lee to, 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 um, to just come to a meeting and we got the media involved. So like, listen, it was, it was a battle lost, you know, sadly it has been lost so far and, and people who need the mobility grant don't have it and people who need the grant to get a car don't have it and it's shocking and maybe it's something we really need to to come back to um, so I think that gave us the the drive again to set up the Clear Leader Forum and since then I suppose the Clear Leader Forum has been a very precious experience in that um, we're very clear we organize it's peer support it's um, across disability in, and that was something that we were always going to do going forward. Um, we were never going to leave anyone out again because we learned that um, we were too focused on impairments rather than um, the rights of people. And what I will say to that as a local DPO that um, is inclusive of everyone, I think I have learned more in the last four years from other people than I've ever learned from my activism. I've, I certainly have learned to be more humble. I've learned how, um, how to be inclusive. Um, I've learned to speak plain English half the time much more. And also what I have learned is the profundity of somebody who's assumed not to know something and to actually say the most inspirational thing and to move everybody um, and, and to bring about that level of peer support that I think inactivism often gets lost because we're so focused on the political agenda, we forget about our feelings and our emotions and our hearts and, and our identity and, and the need to be okay to be a disabled person. I, I think throughout my 20s, I think part of me wanted, I think I struggled, I can't wait to put my finger on now, I think that part of me wanted to be seen as an able-bodied person not as a disabled person and um, equal to non-disabled does that make sense and and i think that was a big struggle for me and um 
And one other thing I wanted to add before I shut up talking now, um, I, I wanted to say that a big moment in my life was around 2009 when I was asked to speak to um, the Arthrogryposis Association and um, that's an impairment-led family support organisation and at the time I went and I had my personal assistant and independent living presentation and I was going to speak to families um, and, and young adults. I've never looked back from that day because I, I forgot how important it was to actually be around people who look like me. And um, I remember, we, because many of us with the impairment that I have, that we have distinct features, and um, some of, um, one of them is our hands. And actually, when I got a couple of years after my um, getting involved, Brian and I, we were we 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 were asked to um, to take on the redevelopment of it, and from being a parent-driven group to um, peer support and support parents and what was and that's what drives me around the family part because all the families and then um james became chairperson a few years later but what what is a standout um is that the families want our voice it isn't other families that actually has shifted and inspired the young parents it's it's that james is the teacher and is getting married or that brian has had twins and that all they wanted was to actually experience other people living an ordinary life and and that has been and i love it i love our kinship i love my identity i love the fact that other people have hands that are bent like me and 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 that we can have the laugh about it and i, I and that's an important part of of peer support i'm actually going to stop talking now believe it or not and marie thank you so much that's a real roller coaster as i said quite emotional as well so uh, i'm sure everyone appreciates not only your honesty uh, but bringing that level of awareness as well and and i know for anyone that's been been listening in it's been fascinating i always admire your energy and the enthusiasm so to bring all of that experience and unfold it for us there has been fascinating now we that journey and what has led you and inspired you and that but you've mentioned it in, in a number of discussions you and i've had and you've mentioned over the course of the previous conversations two particular themes that i think are intertwined and you spoke mm. about it there around your experience in the clear leader forum and, and empathy being something that as a as a value and a mindset that drives you mm. so i want to explore why you think empathy is particularly important and probably allied with that is you talked about today and you've spoken about it in some of the other spaces the concept of internalized oppression I, i'm not sure for people everyone who's there that they might be aware of what that concept is so if you might tell us a little bit what you mean by that and why you think it's important and i think it probably is linked to your analysis around why empathy is is going to be something that's very important for bringing disabled people together yeah i suppose i i, I do i think about what why we achieve so much and I think about why we struggle with being together and why we have had maybe, I don't know, failures or, you know, where we would have had um, conflict. Um, and I suppose the reality is so much of our lives is based on struggle and we're managing our lives. We're, we're, we're part of a society that in many cases dehumanizes us segregates us has pity on us and but we're part of it as well so we're not separate from it and so along the way we we many of us or all of us at some level and um, we are subconsciously taking on that 
um, we are um, we don't often know why we we have certain feelings. They're not always attended to. We're expected to be able to participate at one level, and then there's so little expectations of us at another level. And all of that, I suppose, one of the people I would have spoken to about it at length, and I'm sure many would, would have been Donal. And when, 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 we're, when we're all given a space to talk about our lived experience from that place of emotion, that heartfelt space, it um, allows us to be able to express, our jar, or express ourselves. But in activism and in, in uniquely in Irish activism, because I suppose as a society ourselves, as a, a full society, we are all impacted by colonialism. We're all impacted by um, the, 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 the relation between church and state. And we're all impacted by the deep gender inequality and the poor education um, that Irish society you know, experienced for many years and, and that idea of trying to catch up. And then, then there's subgroups and we're one of those subgroups. And in my research, um, internationally, which disabled people aren't actually identified as um, a social group who are oppressed because our disability is so linked, our experience is so linked to health um, and that medical model. So, like, I, you know, I, I suppose I touched on it when, um, when, when Jackie spoke brilliantly one night and, and, and we talk about things like, you know, even the DPOC, how we had lots of conflict and it closed down. And then the ICPD and the Forum of People with Disabilities and the, the PWDI. And I suppose one of the, the, the and even CIL and, and its emergence to ILMI and all of those things and how we can turn in turn inwards with our frustration and our hurts and our fears because to me it's fear and um, it's fear that if we don't do it now we'll never get it or fear that no one's listening to us and um, fear that one person feels that they're better than me and therefore I have to be louder and all of those things so I suppose for me going forward I'd love us to and we're doing it through COVID-19 and ILMI and all of you staff have been amazing in facilitating us to come together um, in a way that I don't think we've ever done it. So I want to say thanks to that because it gives a voice to all the fear. It gives a voice to, to the, the isolation in a way that brings us together that isn't about a campaign. And I think if we have more attention given to the, the human experience, I think we will be able to successfully achieve our, 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 our goals of achieving our equality. Listen, that's a lifelong thing, but at least a sense of achievement and being able to recognize and more fundamentally celebrate our achievements. And one of the things I didn't say actually is I don't know, Peter or Jackie or Dermot or Maureen or anyone, for me, um, in Cork in um, 1996 was for me the same as I watched um, the celebrations of the marriage equality. I, it was, I believed that day when that document was launched, I really fundamentally believed that was it. It was, our lives were changed forever. Um, we were going to have the um, Corla, the NRB was going to close down, those bad people who actually were our greatest allies. 
strategy for equality. Um, because people in the NRB were our, like so many people were our fantastic allies. And I suppose we were, that's something I wanted to comment as well around the oppression, why we aren't in, I feel that we're, our alliances, you know, with a few people touched on, why sometimes we're weak at um, building alliances. And I suppose I've been thinking about that as well. And what I have come up with, what I've come up with is that our autonomy, our independence and our equality is so deeply dependent on other people. Am I, right? So we want to separate, but we need other people. That I think that there is a conflict in our process and um, that by building alliances, that, that we're going back to um, a dependency on others to do it for us. You know, I think we, we need to work that out ourselves, how to build alliances and hold our space, because um, I suppose the, 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 the majority of people in society, um, if we were to have an alliance, um, would others think that it was our idea, you know, or were people just bringing us along? So for me, I kind of think alliances are harder to forge because of our deep fear of losing our voice again. And then maybe we can look at that because all along the way, if you, every single one of us in the last eight weeks have named and named and named wonderful non-disabled allies who we couldn't have done it without them. And that's a paradox and it's something that I'd like to think more of myself. So in the empathy, so I suppose I feel that my work has saved my life. Working um, within mental health recovery has been a game changer for me. You know, I don't identify as a person with mental health difficulties because I don't identify as the, the, um, a diagnosis. Um, am I affected by my life experience? Of course, am I affected by my parents' traumas? Of course I am. And so working within a space where people come together and really, for me, have taught me what peer support is, have taught me what empathy is. And, and I realized that to move forward in our lives, to do it from a place of empathy, because why is empathy so important? Because nobody will know what it's like to be another person, but we all know what it's like to feel fear, to feel love, to feel joy, to feel all those feelings. And that's where empathy comes from. That's why we can relate. So like I um, I speak all the time, like lots of people do. I'm very, um, I'm quite against um, the idea of awareness training of a non-disabled person being restricted in some way. I think it, it's, it's offensive and it feeds the idea of, of, of um, victimhood. Um, and I always say to a person, a person that I would have done a lot of political work with, thought it was a fantastic idea to get the engineers of County Clare to, um, to sit around wheelchairs. And I said to her, oh my God, that's so old. Really? And she goes, well, they won't really get it. And I said, are you going to put a skirt on them to understand what it's like to be a woman? Are you going to blacken their face to understand what it's like to be a refugee? Are you going to make them live in a halting site to understand what it's like to be a traveller? Like, when do we have to say that we have to have regard and empathy for each other? And that was it. She got it. It took those examples for her to get it. So then we talked about empathy. Um, and then Dermot and I, we've made speeches recently to to the usual to the to the council to candidates um, and i had the great great privilege of being um, um the ilmi nominee to the shannad 
and I at length talked about empathic politics and I talk about the need to really understand what it is like um, and to feel it and to, to, we don't have to have somebody else's lived experience, but to have high regard and, and, and then I would engage in conversations around what empathy means to me and why um, I, I, I feel for other people and I would like people to feel empathy, not sympathy. And if we come from a place of empathy, it, it engenders equality. If we come from a place of sympathy, it engenders pity and discrimination. And sometimes that non-political language does help, help us to understand each other's experiences. Thank you so much. Um, again, there's a lot of depth to your thinking there. I will go with one last question now. You've touched on it there, obviously, the thread at the start and in there, the response there to the question around empathy and internalized oppression. But from your perspective, Anne-Marie, given all that you've been involved in locally, nationally and internationally, where things are now for Ireland for disability rights, what do you see as the priority to, to bring around change? You know, you've, you've, you've mentioned some things there, but if you were to say, look, at this is what the way I think we should work or focus on, what would be your kind of core priority? The two things, one, uh, that we find a space to um, work together, and I don't mean work together as in come up with policies, but to, I think the coalition is starting that, you know, the coalition that's going to talk on or uh, try and report on the UN Convention, um, because uh, what I think we need to do in this country is to, um, to really, really relate and understand um, each other's experiences and most particularly people with significant intellectual disabilities and people who are um, who are visually impaired and blind and deaf, they're excluded from the so-called movement. That would be my dream, is that we would have an inclusive movement. We have a lot of learning to do um, with each other's experiences and that's the part that I think we need to be brave and not pretend we know everything. It's actually be comfortable in our ignorance and actually say, do you know what? I need to learn how to communicate in a way that includes you. Um, and that, that would be my dream, to have a space where when we talk about human rights, when we talk about independent living, that we assume it's for everybody and not for, for, for others. And then my second one would be that, that we develop a, a very strategic space to um, respond to the emotional impact of being excluded and discriminated against um, and that, that that that's up there um, as the, as a priority in the same way as achieving decongregation, because they go hand in hand to me. Because can you imagine being hugely successful and bringing about radical change? And we've decongregation. We forced the state into responding to um, to people um, to move them out, and then we don't provide any emotional support. And I think loneliness and um, is a huge, huge issue. So for me, it's the bringing together of all of us and and responding from a place of um, empathy. And that brings us to the end of podcast eight in conversations about activism and change. Make sure to listen to our other podcasts by visiting www.ilmi.ie to find out more about our work. Sign up for our e-bulletin by emailing info at ilmi.ie or follow us on Twitter at ILM Ireland or Facebook, facebook.com forward slash ILM Ireland.